you know, imagine this. You're a normal 20, 18 something year old. You're going to soccer practice. You're going on dates and you have the urgency to run to the bathroom all of a sudden. You run in there and the toilet is just oh, scary. Looks like a horror movie. And this is the reality every day for people that suffer from inflammatory bowel disease. This is a very unique patient population in that they're very young, they're very scared, and they're very sick. And as gastroenterologists, this is one of the main conditions that we deal with, leading these people through a lifelong, sometimes life-threatening condition. You cannot supplement your way to health. But there are things that we need to add to our lives that can maximize our pathway to wellness. The American diet is virtually devoid of omega-3 fatty acids, which play a major role in cardiovascular disease, gut permeability, and mental health. Personally, I take omega-3s every night and iHerb is the best place for clean, natural sources of supplements. I love the ZenWise Omega-3 Fatty Acid Supplement, which is free of fish burps and good for the environment. Head on over to MaximalBeing.com slash iHerb, that's I-H-E-R-B, and enter the code B as in boy, D as in dog, B as in boy, 5528, and receive 10% off your orders for all supplements. Maximize your supplements with iHerb. Welcome to Maximal Being a GI doc and ICU nurse that break down the science so you can exceed your gut health, nutrition, and fitness goals. So, let's smash the bro science and optimizing your health with your hosts, Doc Mock and R.N. Graham. And so, as always, I'm Doc Mock. I'm a therapeutic endoscopist. I'm also a functional medicine practitioner here in Cleveland, Ohio. And joining me today is Jackie P. Hello, everyone. It is I, Jackie P., your layman. Um, I'm not an expert in anything we're going to talk about today, so I will be here to make sure that all these brainiacs uh, keep the conversation jargon-free and uh, easily to understand. And I'll pass it to you, Dr. Case. Hi there, everyone. My name is Dr. Case. Thank you for that introduction. Um, Like you mentioned, I'm from Michigan. Uh, A little bit about my background. I did my internal medicine training at UIC in Chicago, followed by a fellowship in GI and hepatology um, at Scripps in La Jolla, California. And lastly, an advanced fellowship training at the University of Michigan um, under the mentorship of Dr. Maria Abreu. Hi, I'm Dr. Uh, Mo Naim. Uh, I'm also a, a gastroenterologist here in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, I did my intro medicine training at uh, University Hospitals Case Medical Center here in Cleveland. Uh, I am also from Michigan originally, but I did my <laughs> GI fellowship at the Ohio State, where I did Ooh. do uh, a year, a specialized year in inflammatory bowel disease. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here today and look forward to a very uh, interesting and fruitful conversation. Yeah, I'm really excited as well. This is one of the topics that, you know, as every GI doc, as everybody that is interested in gut health, this is at the forefront of everybody's minds. And so GI, you know, it, it, we, have a, we have a relative alphabet soup of diseases and terminologies. And so, Dr. Case, I wanted to know if you could just tell our listeners, what is IBD, the types, and how is it different than IBS? Absolutely. That's a great way to start off things. We get so many patients that come in saying, I have IBD or 
I have IBS and they don't really know the difference. So the most simplest way that I explain it to patients is IBD is most likely an autoimmune driven phenomenon. There's a lot of other factors that we'll go into that can contribute to that, but um, specifically comes in two flavors. It comes in ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. Ulcerative colitis primarily impacts the colon while Crohn's disease, unfortunately can impact any part of your GI tract. That means from your mouth all the way down to your rectum. With regards to um, IBS, this also comes in different flavors as well, but it's called irritable bowel syndrome. And that can be present as diarrhea, constipation, or a mixed format of uh, the constipation diarrhea. Um, Aside from that, uh, I try to Uh, explain to patients that both of these entities, IBS and IBD, are treated very, very differently. But interestingly, a patient with IBD, an inflammatory bowel disease, can have overlapping IBS, which can make things a little bit tricky. What's a real flare from IBD and what's IBS? IBD can increase your mortality, while IBS is literally a pain in the butt, literally and figuratively, but doesn't increase your mortality, if you will. That, that was an excellent summary, and, and thank you very much for that. You know, I think a lot of the listeners are going to wonder, I know every time I tell a patient that they have one of these conditions, Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, they want to know how they got it. And so, Dr. Naeem, can I get it from COVID? Can I get it from hugging somebody with COVID or that's sick or sniffly? How do we get inflammatory bowel disease? Well, if we knew exactly how we got it, or at least if I knew that, I think I'd be a very, very rich man because I, I would be able to find the cure. Uh, unfortunately, there's no real trigger as far as we know, but there's a lot of factors that contribute to people uh, getting inflammatory bowel disease. Uh, we know there's a very strong genetic component. Uh, we used to think it was disease that mostly affected people of Ashkenazi uh, Jewish uh, background, but we've realized it can actually uh, impact anyone of any race, uh, sex. There's, it's, it's a, a very um, uh, unbiased uh, disease. Um, we do know there's some environmental factors. There's some dietary factors, which I hope we're going to um, uh, get into uh, today, um, but there's really no clear trigger. There is some truth that maybe an infection can trigger this. Sometimes having a uh, bacterial or gut infection can be the initial initial impetus that actually causes a disease to flare. Um, whether or not COVID can give you IBD, I mean, that's something that still needs, needs to be looked into. But as far as we can tell, there's no clear trigger. Um, hugging, hugging somebody definitely is not a, it's not a trigger to get uh, inflammatory bowel disease. Uh, but again, uh, it's something that we're still looking into as to the as to the exact cause uh, in certain patients. We do have some theories. There's there's the uh, equator um, theory. Uh, this was actually seen in patients with multiple sclerosis, which is a, another autoimmune disease. And it was shown that uh, if you take somebody like myself, who's from North African or Egyptian background, and you were to move me to somewhere further away from the equator, like Michigan, where I'm originally from, you actually increase my risk of uh, getting autoimmune disease like multiple sclerosis or even inflammatory bowel disease. Uh, whether that's linked to nutritional deficiencies like vitamin D, because we get a lot less sun here in, here in Ohio, Michigan, and Midwest, that's definitely possible. Uh, is it linked to a Western diet? Um, that, that's something that's, that's been shown over and over again. Um, uh, Western diets that are uh, high in 
red meats, uh, low in dietary fiber, can that be a trigger to inflammatory bowel disease? And we're hoping today that Dr. Susan Keis will uh, help break that down for us and explain to us. And uh, I think it's a good segue to today's talk. Yeah, thank you so much for summarizing that. And I'm going to we're going to start off the topic as far as uh, you know the impact of different dietary factors on IBD. I'm going to turn it over to my co-host here, Jackie P. Thank you, uh, Doc Mock. Sorry for that. Um, so, I mean, you know, IBD, IBS, right? All these affect the GI tract in, in a multiple different ways. Um, so, I mean. I guess we could start with you, Dr. Case, you know, what would you say are the impacts of our diet, um, right? Especially here in the West, um, you know, you say it's impacting a lot of younger folks, right? Um, what is it, you know, how we eat now that is increasing, that, that you're seeing, you know, increasing these triggers um, for folks who might be suffering from IBD and how, you know, it can make it worse or better? Yeah, so basically, you know, our westernized diet, unfortunately, is really not a very good diet, as we know, it includes a lot of processed foods, and these processed foods have a lot of preservatives. And some of these preservatives, we do know in animal studies, increases inflammation, one of those being carrageenan, um, also high fructose corn syrup can contribute, but there are many others. So there are different types of diets that IBD patients, they go online, they do some research that they come in and ask about um, those being the specific carbohydrate diet, the anti, the uh, IBD anti-inflammatory diet, patients inquire about a uh, gluten-free diet, um, the low FODMAP diet, um, paleo diet, and what other diet they may find on the internet. So it's um, important for clinicians, doctors like myself to be aware of what patients are trying to do at home and trying to help direct them in a way that uh, may help ease their symptoms, um, identify a diet that may work better for them, clarify some myths for them that they've read on the internet. Um, unfortunately, there's not a lot of robust uh, data in human models, but there is a good amount of animal studies out there to help give us some idea of what would be the best approach. So I was just going to say, you know, just talking macronutrition. So before we dive into each individual diet, um, you know, Dr. Naeem, what do you think is the ideal carbohydrate for somebody with IBD to have, you know, do heart carbohydrate composures, glycemic indices, et cetera. Did those things impact IBD, both in terms of making it appear for the first time or in terms of how somebody's going to do over time? Yeah, we definitely know that there's a, there's a link uh, between complex uh, carbohydrates and IBD. Um, and we also kind of want to uh, even break that down uh, to our IBD patients um, in terms of what kind of carbohydrates and foods they should be eating uh, during a flare, which is when they have active disease, or during a time that's called remission or symptom-free uh, disease. Um, we do know that, um, <clears throat> uh, again, complex carbohydrates um, that could be found in like leafy vegetables or, or non-leafy ve uh, vegetables as well, um, certain fruits and things like that are high one called FODMAPs. Those are kind of more of complex uh, carbohydrates, mm -hmm. so things like wheat and gluten, um, stuff like that. Uh, we know that can definitely uh, be an impetus or a trigger to cause active disease or, or a flare. 
Um, and conversely, um, uh, simple carbohydrates or simple, simple sugars are things that are found like glucose or sucrose that are found naturally in fruits. Those are definitely less uh, inflammatory. Um, we also kind of know from a macro aspect too, again, like I alluded to earlier about red meats. Uh, we know that red meats, for instance, uh, inhibit um, hydrogen sulfide production and the colonocytes, which decreases the formation of what's called butrate or these short chain fatty acids that help bathe our colon cells and make and keep them healthy. Uh, so we know that a diet like the Mediterranean diet, which is kind of a more of a global type type diet, um, we know can decrease uh, inflammation because it's low in red meats, uh, high in things like fish and uh, chicken, also uh, very high in fiber as well. And again, we have to kind of differentiate to our patients what to eat during a flare or again, symptom disease, active disease, or during a remission state when they're not active. Yeah, that's, um, that's very interesting. You know, you bring up the Mediterranean diet, which I've, uh, I feel like s- seems like the superhero uh, that we need um, in, in a lot of uh, health issues, right? GI tract and your heart and um, just overall health. Um, can you speak a little bit more about, you know, you know, you spoke about inflammatory, right? And we know um, from past episodes, right? Omega-3 is, I mean, it, it should be a superhero. I mean, I don't know why folks aren't talking about it more. Um, but um, can you talk about a little bit about, you know, how that helps, you know, if, is that something that, okay, if I'm in a flare up, right, uh, with IBD, is it something that I should be having more of during a flare up? Or is it something that helps maybe limit the the frequency and intensity of flare ups? Um, so can you speak that's, a little bit? Yes, that's actually yeah. a, that's a that's a great question, and and I, I hope that Dr. Susan Keis will will uh, will come in to assist me on this one as well because she's mm-hmm. a dietary expert. Uh, but we do know that what we know there's things some called omega six and omega threes. Um, okay. Omega six are pro inflammatory, and those are found in animal fats. Uh, specifically like meat, red meat and, um, and uh, uh, any basically any kind of fat that turns hard when when left um, to sit at room temperature. Omega-3s are actually anti-inflammatory. So yes, I would definitely recommend for our patients to do things rich in omega-3 fatty acids um, like certain fish and, and whatnot, because those are actually anti-inflammatory. Uh, so yes, it's definitely something we want to discuss. And the Mediterranean diet has kind of become the superhero in the IBD world, also with card, um, for a, cardio, a good cardiovascular diet, decreasing the risk of heart disease, neurological disease. Uh, it really is a very rich diet. And uh, I, I joke with Dr. Mock about this before, uh, is that on the Mediterranean diet, wine is on that list of good foods. Uh, now, mind you, uh, wine in moderation, uh, one to two glasses um, uh, a day may be helpful, but in certain inflammatory diseases, excess alcohol can be pro-inflammatory. So again, everything in moderation uh, is is likely okay. Yeah, it's it's an interesting balance with the the alcohol paradigm because you know too much alcohol will cause leaky gut, right? It pokes little holes inside of your intestinal tract and gets Absolutely. your bacteria, you know, through into your bloodstream. So that's definitely pro-inflammatory. But resveratrol, which is present in only red wine, right? And that is a antioxidant. And so, you know, for people with IBD, if you, you know, do have intolerances to either sulfa compounds, which can cause a histamine reaction in red wines, 
or have difficulty sleeping or have some degree of leaky gut or uh, irritable bowel on top of your IBD, you know, maybe taking it in a supplement form may be a better route. Uh, Dr. Case, you know, what are your thoughts on um, protein? So we mentioned a little bit about animal protein kind of being pro-inflammatory to the colonocytes, not helping with butyrate, but is all protein bad for your GI tract and for IBD? I think anything in excess is, can be bad for you. Um, there are studies out there um, looking specifically at uh, high protein diets, looking at red meat for animals versus protein-based, um, plant-based proteins rather. And those uh, taking in a high uh, protein diet um, consisting of a lot of red meats can actually increase inflammation versus one of protein, a plant-based protein. Um, I try to, whenever I'm speaking on the subject matter, it's so complex. I try to simplify things for my patients um, and just keep it nice and clean and easy. Um, the question with regards to, should I be taking omega-3s when I'm an omega-3s during a time of inflammation? I think you should be taking it all the time. Um, I think that will help limit the potential of going into a flare, but it's not just one thing that's driving this inflammation. It's the overall, an individual's overall dietary habits. So it's in, you know, putting into place a number of these things that hopefully we'll be talking about that will improve an individual's lifestyle, their symptoms, and lessen the risk for um, inflammation and flares basically, and their quality of life overall. Okay. Yeah. And, um, you know, that, that makes a lot of sense, right? Omega threes are important for a lot of things. So you should be taking it regularly. Um, so let's, let's talk about, uh, something else, right. Uh, along with some other right. Glutamine, um, uh, uh, Dr. Case, you know, what, what would you say, like, what is the role of glutamine in IBD? Um, you know, Take it away. <laughs> uh, you know, for me, I'm not very well versed on glutamine um, in my practice. I don't really haven't really put it into play. So I don't know if uh, Mo has um, put it into play in his practice at all with his patients. I, I so um, I think what you're trying to get get with this is um, so we had talked earlier about the clonocytes using short chain fatty acids like uh, butyrate, things like that. Which, are, which is the main nutrient source um, in the colon, uh, which that comes from basically the stool that's sitting in the, in the colon and the bacteria breaking it down, causing those tertiary fatty acids, which help bathe the colon cells and make them healthy. Now on the small intestine, uh, glutamine or glutamate uh, is the main nutrient um, in the small bowel. Um, now, the, I, I personally, uh, to be honest, I've not read any studies about giving glutamate, glutamine um, uh, supplements to these patients. However, in the pediatric population, there are studies showing what's called the elemental diet, uh, which has shown that even produce uh, about 85% remission in some Crohn's patients in the pediatric population. And I believe that is one of the main nutrients in the elemental diet that they give to these patients to help basically put them in, into, uh, into remission and taking away any of the complex uh, carbohydrates and, and protein. I believe that's what you're you're kind of going with um, with that with that question. Yeah. But personally, um, in my practice, it's it's very difficult from a micronutrient level like that uh, to kind of prohibit diet when, especially during a, a flare, you know, you want your patients on a high protein, high calorie diet 
because they need that to kind of help them get into um, into remission. We talked a little bit about FODMAPs. So, and, and we briefly touched on like some of the food groups that have, have FODMAPs in them. But Dr. Case, what, it, what are FODMAPs and what sort of foods do FODMAPs live in? Well, you know, FODMAPs, we primarily talk about FODMAP diet in patients with with IBS. But like I said earlier, there can be um, overlapping. I patient can have IBD with overlapping IBS. Um, now I always mess up the, uh, the FODMAP acronym. Um, so it's uh, fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polys um, diet. So, and then I also believe it's a misnomer. It's really not a diet per se. It's kind of a roadmap to give patients who have IBS and um, a way to figure out what component in their diet is contributing to their symptoms. If it is a dietary stimulant, if, if diet is a stimulant for their IBS or their IBD for that matter. Um, I really don't, um, push the FODMAP diet in my IBD population. Um, I lean more towards the specific carbohydrate diet, as well as the um, IBD anti-inflammatory diet, because those are the diets that from my studies and from what I've seen reading in the literature, um, these diets not only improve your quality of life, but can potentially possibly change the natural progression of your disease. Well, a FODMAP diet in itself just improves things clinically, symptomatically. That's a really great uh, definition. And uh, it's funny because uh, the FODMAP diet was created at the University of Michigan. Michigan's claim to fame. It still um, has some, bell- it still has its usefulness in the right it, patient. It does. And, you know, I, I agree 100% with what Dr. Uh, Suke said. Um, I use that diet mostly, um, when I'm treating a secondary component of irritable bowel syndrome in my patients. Um, and it's still a great diet to follow. And again, it is a misnomer. It's not technically a diet. It's more of a roadmap. And I tell my patients, don't, you don't have to eliminate these foods, but definitely cut down or avoid these foods. And certain foods that are high in FODMAPs that you wouldn't be aware of, for instance, things like apples, honey. Um, uh, agave, which you think is really healthy because it's a low glycemic index um, uh, source of um, uh, sweetener. Um, so these things are things that I tell them to, to avoid. However, things that I do tell them to eliminate are any artificial sweeteners, which is on the high FODMAP diet. So anything that ends in OL at the end, xylitol, sorbitol, anything like mannitol, anything that ends like that, and you see it on your pack of gum or your mints, those are things you definitely want to avoid because they're definitely not very nice um, to the uh, intestine. And it's very harsh on the intestinal bacteria that you want to make sure you're providing a healthy kind of environment and nutrients for those for those bacteria. So I I, I mirror exactly what, what Dr. Case uh, said, and I do basically what, what she does. <laughs> yeah, I can't agree with you more as well, Mo. Like for me, for my patients with IBS, I find that the FODMAP diet, which is not a diet again, it's a roadmap. Unfortunately, as clinicians, we don't have time to sit down and break down every aspect and how to do it. I used to just give my patients a handout and then tell them, come back and see me in three months. Let me know what, how you're doing. Did we have any results? Did we find a culprit in your diet? Like Mo said, there can actually be good things that you're eating that are good for you that can trigger your IBS um, and you would not be 
aware of unless you were familiar with them. Um, and then they've come back and say, you know what? I read the handout. I had no idea where to start. So with that being said, I started sending my patients to a nutritionist. Um, unfortunately, there's not just one nutritionist I can go to. I'm in a private practice. Payers don't pay for the same dietitian, nutritionist. So I get a smattering of results. But for the most part, I would say 90% of my patients that I do send to a, uh, a nutritionist, dietitian for better teaching on how to actually put the diet in place, they are able to successfully identify a culprit or a few culprits and eliminate them from their diet and have symptomatic relief. Now, unfortunately for the specific carbohydrate diet and the anti-inflammatory, um, the IBD anti-inflammatory diet, um, I don't think a lot of nutritionists or dietitians may be putting that into play. So that's for those diets, I put it on myself to take the time and explain what it is, what it entails. And you'll find that a lot of patients when they're on max aggressive therapy, they don't know what else to do. They're like, doc, what else? Is there something that I'm doing? And that's at the point where you can have a huge impact and say, Hey, let's talk about your diet. Tell me how, what, what do you start with your breakfast? What about lunch? What about dinner? So we focus in on their diet during that interaction and we start making little changes. You can't just throw everything at them. Just one little change here, one little change here. And uh, coming back to the office to reassess. And at the end of a culmination of putting one of those two diets into play, you can actually see patients have clinical improvement in their symptoms or quality of life. And actually, we can also monitor these objectively with um, inflammatory markers say, hey, not only are you feeling better, your markers of inflammation are coming down. That's awesome. Uh, that's kind of exactly how I do it as well um, in my practice. Uh, with the initial, initial diagnosis of inflammatory bowel disease, I think like Schaefer had mentioned at the beginning with the uh, with this introduction, it's usually a very young person, very healthy, mm -hmm. had no medical issues, and all of a sudden, we are completely changing their world by telling them that you have a chronic disease. Mm -hmm. Now, the mainstay of therapy is some kind of anti-inflammatory or medication that's going to decrease your uh, your uh, suppress your immune system. Uh, but I think it's very important for us as GI doctors to make sure that we're treating the disease in a multifaceted approach. So obviously medication being the mainstay of therapy, but also talking about their so, uh, psychosocial uh, behavior in their life and how that's affecting them. Talking about diet, talking about nutrients, vitamin deficiencies, uh, things like that. And I think that's something that I do as well, uh, Dr. Dr. Case, as I go along the disease process with them at the initial visit, then the second and third. And as we move on, we just kind of build up uh, until they're in remission. And once they are hopefully in remission, I really focus on the, the dietary aspect, the psychosocial aspect. Uh, Cause again, it's, it's very hard for a lot of us um, in the medical field to do all that in even a 45 to 60 minute setting. If we have that at our disposal, that's still very difficult. And it's a lot of information for, for, for some of our patients. Although a lot of our patients now are highly educated, highly motivated, have a lot of resources at hand to research stuff. So it always comes up to be a very um, uh, great, fruitful conversation between myself uh, and my patients. And definitely everything that Dr. Kay said, I, I agree with as well is you have to kind of treat this in a multifaceted approach in terms of 
how you deal with it, with the disease, not just with medications, but again, talking about their life, talking about their diet and kind of going through every one of those little aspects and really helping them uh, kind of along the way until they are in what we call remission or disease-free state. Exactly. I would also add to what most um, uh, mentioned is that these diets are complex and they can be a lot of information for patients. And we have to acknowledge that and take our time with them and really bring it in at a, an important point during their, their disease process, if you will, when they're willing to, because as we know, diet in general is very difficult for people to change. Nobody wants to change their diet. If we change our diet, we would all be healthy, skinny, and we wouldn't have this obesity epidemic because people refuse to believe a lot of times that their diet is that impactful on a disease process. But as we go on with the studies and the research, it's really the diet driving a lot of this and building that patient relationship and that trust, like Mo said, bringing patients back in, letting them know they have this chronic um, uh, autoimmune driven phenomenon that you're going to be with them throughout the way. And hopefully through therapy modifications in their diet, maybe psychosocial help as well, that we can get them back to their baseline, that they only remember that they have an inflammatory bowel disease is when they have to take their medication. Interesting. That's, um, you know, not, not that we're talking about diet, right. Um, and, and how much of an impact it can be for patients suffering from IBD. Um, can you, can you expand, um, Dr. Case on, you know, on, on that particular autoimmune protocol diet, um, you know, and what that looks like. So the simplest way to put it is the, the IBD anti-inflammatory diet looks at certain foods, um, that are pro-inflammatory, that meaning driving inflammation versus anti-inflammatory that limit inflammation. So if you're taking, if I'm treating you with aggressive therapy, biologics, immune modulators, and you're going out there and having a westernized diet or a standard American diet with the acronym SAD, um, which it is a very sad diet. Um, <laughs> I, I'm I'm fighting a pro-inflammatory uh, pro-inflammatory state with everything that I'm doing. You're negating possibly the benefits of my medication. So um, there's tables and charts with different food items that are considered that we know can be pro-inflammatory versus anti-inflammatory. That once again were studied in animal models. Um, so. To go through all these different ones is a lot, but if you give them that concept of a very simplistic form, they can grasp it and be like, okay, I want to eliminate food products that are going to drive inflammation. These other ones, bah, bah, bah. These ones actually are anti-inflammatory and I should start consuming these more on a regular basis to decrease that inflammation in my system. That makes sense to patients. Um, a lot of times, I don't know if... Uh, if Mo, you have this with your patients, but a lot of patients will come to me and say, Hey, I don't want to change my diet, but what if I start taking a probiotic? <laughs> Can I, that have the same effect of these diets? I don't know if you get that, Mo. I definitely get that uh, all the time. And I, I, I can speak about a half hour just about my <laughs> thoughts on, on, on probiotics. Yeah. Uh, the short of it is I, I believe in probiotics 
what I believe more and more are called prebiotics or, or the, the nutrients that you find in good, healthy fruits and vegetables. I think what I tell my patients is uh, if you have a little um, uh, tin or one of those plastic tins of uh, blueberries or blackberries, no matter how well you think you're cleaning those berries or that fresh, fresh head of broccoli or asparagus, you're not killing the bacteria in that. You're getting good bacteria. Uh, you're also getting good nutrients, which are the prebiotics that help the good bacteria in your gut. So yes, that's definitely something that I definitely get a lot of. Um, you know, and I get a lot of patients that again very motivated, research to internet, and uh, you know I've learned a lot through my patients about diet and and IBD. Um, I had a patient that uh, refused to go on biologic therapy, and for people that don't know what biologics are, these are medications that we use that are usually injectable or in an infusion type uh, format to help suppress the immune system. And he followed a very strict ketogenic diet. Uh, and he had lost a significant amount of weight. And I will say um, anecdotally um, that he was able to keep his disease um, in, a in a clinical remission state for quite some time. He did eventually get on the biologic, but there's definitely something to say about the diets. Um, and I, I think it's very important for us to talk to our patients and allow them to have some kind of autonomy in their, in their care. So they want probiotics and I, and they come from uh, a, night, a community where they can afford to buy these supplements. Um, Cause again, these are not FDA regulated supplements. You don't really know what you're actually getting, uh, but if they want to do it and they say that they feel better on these supplements or these, again, what we call complementary or alternative type medications. Um, and some of these do have data behind them, right? So things like curcumin, you know, which is a natural substance found in turmeric, for instance. Uh, there's great studies showing clinical remission in ulcerative colitis patients who take two to three grams of curcumin per day. So we do know that there are some good studies with that. And um, I, I, I try to keep my personal bias against it. And I, again, if it's, if it's working and they feel better, I tell them, please go ahead, do it as long as you can afford it and it's not putting a burden, financial burden on you. Uh, I think it's important for us to keep some autonomy uh, to our, for our patients and kind of guide them through this, through this process. But uh, yeah, probiotics for me are something that uh, I have to bite my tongue sometimes and just kind of say, go ahead. It's great. Yeah, we all do. I feel I do very, something very similar. Patients come with a probiotic. I say, how long have you been on it? They're like a week. Okay. How long does the bottle last for 30 days? Okay. At the end of the 30 <laughs> days, if you find that symptomatically you're feeling better, by all means, continue it if it's not a financial burden on you. But truthfully, these pro like, oh, I got this probiotic from this store, that store. I don't know what's in it. I have no idea. I don't know how you know, think that I would know what's in it. We don't know. There's just too many probiotics, prebiotics out there on the market that as clinicians, we're not, no way we'll be able to keep up. But with regards to probiotics in the setting of pouchitis, like BSL number three, we know that is effective treatment. And um, our, that's prime, we can use that for that specific disease entity, meaning a patient that had ulcerative colitis, got their colon taken out, a pouch is created from their small intestine, and then it starts manifesting uh, the ulcerative colitis as well, or disease process. And so we treat those patients with specifically a probiotic VSL number three. Now, Dr. Case, if you could elaborate a little bit, because I the VSL number three has always been a really wonderful 
uh, thing. And in the studies, it, studies look look really look fantastic. Now, from what I know, that in the real life kind of um, open label type formats, that we really haven't been able to recreate any of the studies that showed that the VSL number three actually actually worked. I, 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 in your practice, with your pouchitis patients, and great great way to describe what that what those who those patients are. Have you found it effective in your in your patients? You know, I so patients in general don't want to take any medication that's going to suppress their immune system. Some patients have hesitancy taking antibiotics. So some patients, a lot of patients nowadays are looking for a very clean, holistic approach. Um, so it doesn't hurt to start with VSL number three. And yes, I will definitely see wins with the product with VSL number three in patients with pouchitis, but then there are patients that are resistant to it. So then we have to kind of go in a stepwise approach. Okay, what's next? Let's try antibiotics for a period of time. Keep VSL number three as some kind of low, some maintenance and see okay. just by crossing it over with antibiotics can calm it down that the VSL number three can continue to be effective. But as you know, most sometimes some of the most difficult patients to treat are patients with pouchitis during due to um, the recurrent flares and issues, and also those patients that have a form of ulcerative colitis that only affects the rectum and the sigmoid, which has been yeah, really difficult to treat. Certainly. Really difficult. And just those limited area. Um, so that's kind of my approach with my patients. That's what I've seen in my clinical practice. So if it's in the fridge, it's good. It's in the fridge. It's good. <laughs> All right. yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, it sounds like, you know, you, you both are, you know, definitely doing what you can to help your patients, you know, achieve their, their, their health goals. Um, so we're going to take a quick break. Um, Maximal Beans. So just hold one second and uh, we'll be back shortly. What's going on, Maximal Beans? It's Doc Mock here. Many of you are returning to the gym now, but some are not going back. Regardless of what you plan, Rogue has got the right gear to fit your needs. I personally own a barbell set and love it. The black op shorts are sweat resistant and flexible for getting deep in your squats. Head on over to MaximalBeing.com Rogue for our referral link. Order three items and they ship for free. And as usual, it's Doc Mock, and I'm here to maximize your pathway to wellness. If you're stuck at home and cannot make it to the grocery store, delivery may be the best way to stay clean and healthy. Instacart is the national leader in the direct-to-home delivery service. With numerous major chains and food from smaller stores, you can get those local veggies sent directly to your doorstep. Head on over to MaximalBeing.com slash Instacart and maximize your nutrition today. Okay, and we're back, uh, Maximal Beings. I'm again here, uh, Doc Mock, with uh, Jackie P., Dr. Susan Case, and Dr. Mo Naeem. Uh, a lot of the common things that we've talked about so far are about the input of macronutrition on people that have Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. And there are a lot of diets that have shown some evidence for these conditions and a lot of common threads amongst those diets, but a lot of conflicting information as well. Um, I think the biggest things being with fruits and vegetables, um, which are, you know, in general, pretty good for gut health. Um, but there are certain diets that, that restrict these from, from patients. I mean, red apples, that's like a butyrate producing bifidobacterium's dream. So I, I can't imagine ever wanting to, to restrict that in my patient. 
So I think Jackie has some questions for our experts here. Take it away, Jackie P. I do. I feel like we should have some good answers here because of what you all do. Um, so the first question is, uh, we've spoken a lot about diet, right? And, and obviously diet is our fuel, which is important, but I'm going to take a sidestep and talk a little bit about physical exercise. Um, Two-part question, and we can start with Dr. Case. First, um, how have, have you or have you implemented some form of exercise and mobility regimen in treating your patients? And second part, um, what is your favorite exercise? So uh, with regards to that question, so you first of all need to know where your IBD patient is. Are they having a flare? Are they in remission? Are they transitioning to remission? So where are they in that process? So if a patient is having a flare, um, obviously that's not the ideal time uh, to be trying to do any kind of exercise regimen other than staying active in a way that's not going to stress your body out too much, already fatigued or having urgency frequency, it's not going to work. Just be cognizant about getting up, moving, not like laying in bed all day, really forcing yourself to get up and try to be, go for a walk outside if you can, if the weather permits here in the Midwest, absolutely not. It's too cold, um, but definitely try to stay moving. Now, for patients that are in remission, uh, under control, there isn't one particular form of an exercise, whether it be a, a cardiovascular-based exercising or um, weight training. What I tell patients is, if you're going to start an exercise regime, you need to really listen to your body because your body and your immune system doesn't know a good stress from a bad stress. So this motto, uh, no pain, no gain, actually is not a good motto for patients with IBD. Because if you push yourself to a point of no pain, no gain, and are not listening to your body, you actually can put yourself into a flare because your body doesn't know a good stress. You're working out. That's good stress, right? It can't differentiate good stress from a bad stress. So you really need to know where to draw the line. I had a young lady with ulcerative colitis when I was a fellow in Chicago. And she's like, doc, I got this personal trainer. I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to get in shape. About two months into her training process, she came in with a major flare. I was like, you know, what are you doing? She's like hit interval training. And I was like, and how did you feel? She's like, at points I wanted to throw up. And my trainer said, keep going. I said, no, 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 no. See, that's not going to work for you. When you feel that point that you're going to throw up to that point, that's where you need to stop and say, my body has had enough. This is where I draw the line. And believe it or not, she stepped away from doing uh, that personal training with that trainer, kind of did her own thing, some light jogging, some weight training that she learned from her personal trainer. And three months later, disease under control, weight lost, and now knows how to incorporate different forms of exercise, but by listening to her body. So whatever you think is going to help you physically, mentally, emotionally, go for it. Um, but listen to your body. Don't push your body 
past a certain extent, that stress is become, going to become, um, can possibly trigger a flare. And we also have, uh, there are marathon runners, uh, believe it or not, who um, you'll see uh, coming in for um, having an onset of diary and blood. And you start asking them, what's your background? Well, I'm a marathon runner. I just ran X marathon. Well, that kind of stress can potentially um, help the disease manifest itself. So you have the uh, genetic predisposition for IBD, some environmental factors, possibly one of those being jogging, which you think is good for you, but you pushed it past the level that is then potentially signaling to your immune system, stress, 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 and activated and all the stars aligned. And here you are, your ulcerative colitis or your uh, Crohn's disease is now active. Wow. So that's gonna, that's a, uh, it's pretty tough. I mean, yeah. I mean, if you put your body under certain duress, I guess it will flare up other um, health effects. Exactly. Um, and I think that's the key. Once again, simplicity for patients is key. I don't need to, to impress them with big words and terminology that they don't understand. They want the real deal. They want it in layman's terms and they want to be able to do what they want to do. They already feel restricted. I have this chronic condition. This sucks. Life sucks. No, it doesn't. And here's why. And I'm going to tell you why you can do whatever you want. Like, obviously, if you're not having a flare and having urgency, frequency, but when you're in remission or on the process of getting there, just listen to your body. Don't stress it out. Baby steps. And you will continue to advance in your exercise regime and your routines, and you will see success, but really listen to your body. That's all they need to know. And just by telling them that, that little pearl of insight, which they didn't really think about, that that stress could potentially be negative stress, even though it's coming in the form of exercise, it can be really life-changing and really change your trajectory. Oh, that's, that's good insight. Thanks uh, for sharing that. And uh, the second part of that question, what is your favorite exercise, Dr. Case? My per, for myself or for my yes, patients? For yourself. What are oh, you doing? For myself. Oh, the brick my. of sweat. Okay. So before COVID era, um, I used to really enjoy a combination of weights and cardiovascular through uh, something called Orange Theory. I'm sure a lot of people have heard of it. But since I can't really participate in that um, presently due to COVID, switched over to just doing my own in-home um, uh, regimen, if you will, um, this program that incorporates body combat, which is kind of cardiovascular uh, with some uh, body pump, meaning weights, and then some spinning, cycling um, to just keep it variation so I don't get bored. I don't know if Mo's doing something different. <laughs> Well, I learned a lot uh, from your discussion on exercise. That was really awesome. So I always learn something uh, new, new from you. Um, I no, I don't do anything differently at all. I, and I agree with you. I've I've actually tried to work out before with Doctor Mock, and he <laughs> tries to push you to the extent of throwing up. <laughs> I, I stopped working out with him because he's, he's he's intense. Jackie literally. P knows that too. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, when he's. When he said uh, blood and diarrhea, I'm like, yeah, that sounds like a workout session. With <laughs> exactly. Oh, that's it's not good? That is definitely not good. <laughs> yeah, that's too intense. That's definitely intense. 
uh, Schaefer's like, that's that's a normal weekend for me. That's that's my yeah. high interval weekend trading right there. <laughs> yep. Um, 90 burpees today. <laughs> <laughs> Once he starts throwing a ball on the wall, I'm, I'm, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> um, exercise is uh, personally for me an integral part of my life. Um, I try to do at least three to five days a week um, as I'm getting older right now. And I'm not that old, but I definitely still feel it. I try to do more low intensity type stuff, but I still do some high intensity cardio. Um, you'll during the summer months, you'll see me outside on the trail doing 50, 60 miles on my bike. Uh, when it's a little colder, I may be on my spin, uh, on my spin bike or running outside, uh, doing something at a moderate pace, five, six miles uh, when, when I do go, do go running and I do like weightlifting as well. Uh, but again, low intensity weightlifting. I'm not trying to win any uh, bodybuilding <laughs> contests. Come on, um, Mr. Wonderful. Come on. Yeah, you cast your uh, name yeah. all over it, Mo. I, I can't. I, not anymore. Not anymore. It, it hurts. <laughs> it hurts. I, I definitely feel it. Now, Dr. Mock, he's, when you see my gym, he, he definitely uh, inspires you. Uh, <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you, friends. Uh, if you see yeah. Doc Mock's calf muscles, you have to be They're like, incredible. How, how many miles are you running to get those calf muscles? It's genetic. That is yeah. genetic. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, dad. Yeah. Um, <laughs> if you're listening out there, um, yeah. I think you guys also brought up a really important point and we see this time and time again, you know, not only in my clinical practice, but also with our clients is that, you know, people get placed on all these kind of bro sciencey plans, right? Their trainers train them a certain way, which that's their area of expertise, but then also put them on a super restrictive, very odd diet plan. And it's just a disaster for people that don't fully understand the disease state like inflammatory bowel disease. So, you know, it's our job as healthcare providers to educate them. It's their job to educate us and continue the conversation rolling. We work as a team together and you need to know what you're recommending to people. You need to know the science. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And you have to do it with a certain sense of tact, right? Because uh, I, I know one thing is that a lot of our patients, that they do have personal trainers. That's a really close relationship. I mean, they've built a bond with that person. And as a doctor, for you to say that what they're teaching you is wrong, it's just, just not the right approach. So it's about some tact. It's about kind of listening to what, to what they're saying and kind of slowly, you know, kind of teaching them along the way about what's good, what's bad. Uh, I think one thing I've learned in my practice now, and I've been for about, you know, 12 years now, is that you have to listen listen to the person in front of you talking. You can't just announce something or or speak speak poorly or negatively about whatever that they're talking about. And slowly kind of have them gain your gain your trust so yeah a lot of these bro diets uh, yeah it's it can be very frustrating and i want to get one of i bite my tongue as we're having the conversation um but I, I i allow them to kind of teach me about it and you know sometimes i have to go research it myself and, and go from there uh yeah and you know yeah to echo that actually um perfect segue dr naeem um you know, it is good to have a team around you, right? You, you know, Dr. Case, you said that, you know, you refer folks to a, a nutrition, right? And so everyone's having that conversation. And, you know, maybe there might be a thing that might be a thing where your personal trainer should have a conversation with your, 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 your doctor who or in your care team. Um, but on that note, I've got another question for you both. And Dr. Naeem, this one's going for you first. Speaking of diet and nutrition, what is the craziest diet you have heard of or potentially tried back in your non uh, doctor years? <laughs> oh, I have. Uh, 
Oh my gosh. <laughs> well, I, I think we all know that the that is it the, the South Beach diet. I think it was the really <laughs> kind of started the whole, you know, uh fought about diets. I think obviously we've shown that's not a good diet and they've had like a modified South Beach diet. Um I honestly think the craziest diet is the ketogenic diet. I think that's, you know, the 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 uh, intermittent fasting. Uh, although it's extremely effective, I know a lot of people that have done it and it's it works wonders. But I, I think it's a very restrictive diet, and it it doesn't seem to be doesn't seem to me that it's a sustainable long term diet. Now, some people who are programmed that way can do it and stay on. And I think Dr. Mock is I think you were on a right um, uh, intermittent fasting keto keto diet, correct? I don't do keto uh, per se, but I I fast pretty much every day. Humans have been doing it for thousands of years, and it's very easy. It is very easy. Not for everybody. For some, but not if for you, many. If you, if you could do it, I think that is a great way to to, to diet and to kind of um, get your body into a, a certain a, a certain way of uh, breaking down the, the fats and nutrients. Uh, but I think for me, it's more about moderation, uh, something that's more long-term, that's more sustainable. Uh, I, had a, I had a patient that was on a strictly uh, chicken broth diet. That's all she did. Oh, and she also was able to maintain some form of remission in her disease. And I, I just said, I don't understand it. Um, <laughs> I can't explain it. It's, it works. So <laughs> very happy for you. Um, but I think the worst one was the South beach diet was, which was really high in red meat and, um, animal fats. And, um, which again, we've shown that animal fats probably aren't as bad as we think they are, but diet rich or high in red meats is definitely probably not the way for us, for us to go. So that's probably the craziest diet. And I'm glad that we've kind of gone away from that diet. And the future really is going to tell us what, which diet's the best. Uh, we just need some more time to really know which diet we all should be following. I've tried a lot of diets in my days. <laughs> um, I will say uh, two of my most outlandish diets that I tried on myself uh, back in college at the University of Michigan, I wanted to lose weight fast. So I decided to do the slim fast diet, you know, very popular, a shake for breakfast, me chugging a shake on my way to morning lecture, a shake for uh, lunch, and then a sensible lean cuisine, microwavable meal. <laughs> terrible, mm. terrible, terrible. Um, then fast forward, I'm in my GI fellowship in California, just new, new place, new set of clinical responsibilities, just trying to figure out where I fit. How do I be a good GI fellow? I subsequently gained 15 pounds in the process. Not good. <laughs> so I said, well, I really want to lose this weight fast. So at the time, there was a big, big, crazy uh, Dr. Oz was pushing HCG diet. So it was a very restri caloric restrictive diet. And then you would have to inject yourself with HCG. And then in the morning, test your urine. Naturally. Um, and yeah, Naturally. I mean, listen, <laughs> the, the caloric intake was so restrictive, like 800 calories. Of course, you're going to lose weight. Why am I injecting myself with HCG? Like that was an epic fail. <laughs> it was awful. Did you actually inject? I did. I actually did inject. Where do you get that? Where do you get the AC? The, it, was it was through a company. It was through a company through Canada. 
oh, through Canada. Very, I mean, very reliable. <laughs> yeah. Very reliable. See, <laughs> yeah. hey, you know, let people know, you know, even though we're clinicians, we're human too. Yeah, hey, sure. try things. We're not, we're just like everyone else out there in public. Is If there's a quick fix, we want it too. Sure, of course. So those are my two most outlandish diets that I've done. Since then, I have moved away from that. And I will... Um, let you know that I personally, for my dietary habits now, with all the information, the knowledge and the research, I follow a more specific carbohydrate diet and an anti-inflammatory diet, if you will. That's kind of what I do. It's not restrictive and it's not truly restrictive. It's just making better choices. Nice. The truth is for me, I follow a really awful diet. I, I eat a lot of, <laughs> I eat way too much red meat, uh, maybe a little too much wine that's recommended on the Mediterranean diet. Um, but thankfully exercise goes a long way. That's, that's good. No, I, uh, D- Dr. Oz, um, that's, I mean, yeah. I mean, I think we both, Dr. Oz and I went to the same med school. I believe oh, really? if, if I checked the facts, <laughs> which was no med school. I think, um, yeah. I think you guys brought up a lot of important points here with diets. It's that every person is different, right? Depending on your, your background, your genetics, the way that your genes are the proteins that your body is made up of are expressed in those genes. Keto is not for every person, right? People have PPAR gamma gene mutations. They oxidize fat. So fats are bad for those people. It's not as straightforward as you think. And so that's why, again, it comes down to understanding the science practicing things methodically and figuring out what's best for that individual person. Back to you. I I think it's important to to, to mention that uh, with diets, what is your goal? Is your goal weight loss? Is your goal uh, building muscle? Is your goal um, looking for a more clean anti-inflammatory? What is your ultimate goal? So based on what your goal, there are different recipes, different diets, and you can try for a period of time to see if it's successful. It's all trial and error. That's a, that's a good point. I, um, you know, that reminds me of, uh, RN Graham, who's not on, on the show here. Uh, but, uh, I followed one of his diets once upon a time, two years ago. <laughs> and, uh, I believe doc mocked it and we had two completely different reactions. You know, Uh-oh. I, I, you know, like I, you know, I got lean. You know, I mean, I was pissed off all the time because the carb cycling <laughs> diet, right? So like everyone knew at, at the office that don't mess with Jackie on Tuesdays because those are newer carb days. So I was just <laughs> short with everyone. Um, and, you know, and, and Doc Mock had a completely different reaction. So did not um, work at all. No, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no results. Mm-mm. Yeah. So, you know, it comes down to, you know, stick into something long enough to be consistent to make sure it works for you. But if it doesn't work for you, right, um, you know, you, you know, you two doctors, right, who are, you know, probably the smartest people around the average layperson, right? You had your trial and error. So regular folks out there, right? It's mm-hmm. okay to just, you know, stumble here and there when it comes to uh, your, your nutrition goals in your journey. Last question. Mm-hmm. Favorite health book? And Dr. Case, you can go first. It looks like you have it. I have them. I have them ready to go. (laughs) So first and foremost, my favorite book personally is Breaking the Vicious Cycle. This talks about the specific carbohydrate diet. And when my patients are really ready and really committed to 
wanting to change their diet and hopefully um, feel better as well as decrease inflammation and potentially even come off some of their therapy, I say, go to Amazon, get this, read it, come back, let's talk and go from there. Um, Then the second is great book, The Mind Gut Connection, which I know we're not talking about, but also a very phenomenal book. So two different ends of the spectrum, diet, mind, gut, they both play a role. And that's not something we're talking about today, but maybe for next time. Stay tuned, folks. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Naeem? I don't have books prepared, so I I, I, I wasn't ready for that question. Um, but I, I'll, I'll have to just uh, uh, go on what Dr. K said. Uh, those two <laughs> books look fantastic. Don't I'm worry. Reading, I'm, I'm reading them today. All right, perfect. <laughs> They're ordered on Amazon already in my inbox. In my Amazon box. Prime, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Knowing Amazon Prime is probably already on your doorstep right now. Yes. So. <laughs> So th- this yes. has been an amazing conversation. I think we're running short on time. I- I'd like to personally thank my co-host, Jackie P, for being there time in and time out. And thank you so much for Dr. Susan Case and Dr. Mo Naeem for sharing their thoughts for all of those out you uh, out there that have inflammatory bowel disease. Feel free to, to reach out to us at MaximalBeing.com. You can send us an email at team at Maximal Being. Um, we're happy to discuss more of a holistic sort of approach to your gut health. Dr. Case, you you have a really educational Instagram page. Where can people find you on social media? Yeah, you can definitely find me on at Dr. Susan Case on Instagram. Uh, My Instagram platform is really to educate, talk about topics that really matter from a real GI doctor that has the background, the interest, and able to take complex medical information and give it back to the public in a way that they can understand, make sense, and hopefully implement some of the pearls uh, of insight that I'm providing for them. Um, So I really appreciate you taking the time to have myself and Mo on your podcast today. I think talking about the subject matter is very, very important. Hearing about it from two um, board certified GI physicians is very important. And also letting the IBD population know that we are talking about this. We are trying to help them. We are trying to give them evidence-based recommendations when it comes to their diet. And then for my wardrobe change here, Uh-oh. you know, it's all about making IBD visible. <laughs> so thank you so much. Nice. Dr. Naeem, what's going on in your world these days? Uh, I'm learning from Dr. Uh, Susan Keiss's uh, social media school on how to <laughs> uh, put myself out there and and be more marketable. That's something that's still kind of new for me. Uh, but our our office, uh, we're at North Shore Gastroenterology. Uh, you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, uh, Facebook, um, and it's basically it's a group effort with uh, myself and my partners uh, 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 at the office. Um, and that's we also put a lot of content on there uh, for the. the for the community uh, with links and stuff to certain studies, uh, diagrams, uh, information just in terms of uh, general GI or gastrointestinal disorders, including inflammatory bowel disease. That's a great way if you want to look us up at North Shore Gastroenterology. Again, we're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Um, I think I might be forgetting one of the other platforms, but uh, <laughs> you, can, you can find us on there. 
All right. Thank you all so much. And uh, for those of you maximal beings out there, uh, stay tuned to more information from these uh, wonderful minds out there. And as always, I am Doc Mock here with Jackie P, Dr. Mo Naeem, and Dr. Susan Case, and we are here to maximize your pathway to wellness. What's going on, Maximal Beings? Doc Mock here. If you haven't done so already, leave us a comment and hit the subscribe button. Let your friends and family know. That way we can get the word out and continue to bash the bro science.